Southern Skies. Online Media. folks and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 47 of the program where we look at the world of aviation from an Australia Pacific point of view. On a picture perfect Sunday afternoon here in Melbourne, Australia, I'm Steve Vischer and with me as always is Grant McHeron. G'day mate. Hey mate, how are you going? Not too bad, got a belly full of sausages mate, we've been out to a barbecue today at Moorabbin Airport, it was most pleasant. Yep, that's right, the uh, crew from downwind.com.au where we host our forums and the folks from Moorabbin Flight Services got together and uh, threw a bit of a barbecue, come on down, have some fun and and uh, get some relatively inexpensive, in fact, I'd say downright bargain, trial introductory flights or even a check flight. Yes, in fact, I signed up for one of those myself, Grant. Couldn't get the uh, couldn't get the 20 bucks over quickly enough. And uh, before <laughs> you start rushing folks for the phone and looking up, that was only for today. So uh, sorry you've all missed out uh, by the time you hear this, but uh, I'll certainly be taking some uh, advantage of uh, some fl- very cheap flight time later next week. Excellent. I think that's a great idea, mate. Well, I'll tell you what, episode 46, Grant, uh, went very well for us. Uh, it, um, it certainly got a a, a lot of listeners, a lot of new listeners. So to those of you who have uh, persisted and come across to listen to this show, we uh, we certainly welcome you and uh, thanks very much for your support. And, uh, you know, Grant, we got a lot of uh, good feedback on that episode. We tried to approach it from a, a standpoint of not speculating uh, about what went on. I mean, we don't know, like we, we pointed out a lot of times last week. So, uh, you know, we got uh, quite some good feedback. So uh, thanks, folks. And we, we're glad you enjoyed that episode. It was really good. Yeah, that's right. And uh, we'll we'll do what we can to get uh, Captain Richard Woodward back on to have a chat with us about his early aviation career and his times with the uh, with the Air Force. But uh, definitely if you're new to uh, playing Crazy Down Under, having come in recently, don't forget to check out our favourite episodes list on the website and uh, that gives you an indication of some of the episodes we think are definitely essential listening. Yeah, well, that'll be all of them, Grant. Well, look, if, you, if you're really uh, masochistic, I mean, dedicated, I mean, well, you know, if you really want to, you can go back to episode one and work your way forward and appreciate the fact that our quality has improved somewhat. Yeah, well, speaking of quality, Grant, uh, I hope folks can notice, or, you know, well, I can certainly notice. So I'm coming to you this week with my brand spanking new Heil PR40 microphone. I've been wanting to get this microphone for about 12 months, the same microphone that uh, Leo Laporte and many of the pros use. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm really happy and I don't know how it sounds at your end, but coming through my headphones, I almost sound like John Laws. Well, okay, let's uh, let's have a quick look back at uh, things that might have happened on the A380 front uh, since our last show. Uh, Grant, they're still, still grounded. There's uh, two aircraft that are uh, due for delivery, I think, very, very soon, according to our sources at Qantas. And we believe those two new aircraft are coming with uh, engines that have either been upgraded or fixed uh, from what they think might be the problem on those Trent 900s. Once again, they still don't know for sure, but it certainly seems to be the way the speculation's going. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Qantas are due to take delivery of a few more of the A380s and one or two at the end of this year. And yeah, all indications are they'll have an engine that 
will be safe to use. And, uh, you know, some, some details are coming out of the uh, rather extensive damage that happened to the wing of that aircraft uh, that was involved in the, the now well-publicised incident. And uh, once again, I mean, it's just a credit to the, uh, to the you know, to the pilots, uh, to, you know, that they brought that plane down uh, relatively intact and no injuries. And, uh, you know, I think really the thing that surprises me with Qantas is that they're not plugging that good news story more. You know, just look how, you know, okay, we've had this incident, but look how good our pilots are. And, uh, you know, it's not to be disrespectful to pilots of other airlines, but uh, this was obviously a, uh, a fantastic effort by those guys. Yeah, mate, definitely a uh, top-notch crew. Uh, they did very well bringing it back, but uh, Qantas crews are of the very high caliber. And no matter what, it's it's once again showing that uh, having good, high-quality crews is well worth the effort and the uh, cost. Yeah, very true. So, uh, you know, like I say, uh, apart from that, I mean, you know, the, the mainstream media is still going bananas reporting everything that's uh, going on with Qantas. I mean, it seems to be. They, they've had a few more incidents that, that might be of some concern, but uh, the thing I find interesting, Grant, is that uh, nothing is being reported about Virgin Blue or the commuters uh, or Tiger Airways or anything else. I mean, we did hear on the news this morning that a Virgin Blue plane had to uh, divert to an alternate airport uh, with an unruly passenger who the flight crew managed to uh, handcuff and uh, subdue until the police could take care of him. But, I mean, that's hardly a maintenance issue but I mean the point is that uh, every little thing now that happens in aviation the uh, you know as far as the mainstream media is concerned is Qantas 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 and uh, boy they could use some good news I mean uh, they're not getting a lot of it either and uh, I, I think uh, even this week where they, it was announced that they've lost the uh, the AFL football uh, contract it's worth about eight million dollars uh, from what we read uh, in fact Virgin Blues managed to score that one away from them so uh, I guess that kind of overshadows uh, you know we were out at the 90th anniversary celebrations last week at Melbourne Airport and they made a major announcement there about sponsoring the being the naming rights sponsor for the uh, Melbourne uh, Grand Prix, the Formula One Grand Prix uh, next year. Uh, but of course, you know, we stood there, Grant, didn't we, in the media pack and watched the uh, watched the, the journalists fire questions at Alan Joyce uh, and none of them was asking about any of, the, any of the good news stories. Everything was to do with maintenance, maintenance, maintenance. And of course, Alan yep. Joyce stuck to the same line he always does, which is safety, safety, safety. So interesting, but poor old Qantas, they can't seem to take a trick right now. They're getting kicked while they're down, which is very typical for much of what happens in the media here. But yeah, Hopefully a few things will change and they'll get back to playing smooth sailing again and all will be right. Meanwhile, definitely a lot of fun out of the uh, 90th birthday party. Uh, that beautiful 707 park there by John Travolta, that was just awesome to see come in. And uh, not bad to be hanging out with an A330, 747, 737, etc. It was it was pretty cool just to be hanging around. They even had a uh, one of the roulettes, Pilatus PC9s on the ramp and a Royal Flying Doctor's Service King Air. Yeah, so uh, show me about the weather that day, but we'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. Uh, before we go too much further into the show, though, we uh, for those of you who uh, didn't catch uh, the uh, Ustream uh, broadcast that we did during the week, we did draw the winners uh, of our uh, Flight City uh, competition. So uh, for those of you, in fact, we've been in contact with all three people, but uh, we'll just announce it here to make it all nice and official, Grant. The uh, the winner of the uh, Flight City uh, simulator package was uh, Graham Neal, and uh, we drew uh, two extra ones for uh, that we thought we'd give a plain crazy down under t-shirt away to, just as a way of uh, thanking you for supporting in the show and uh, the winners of those t-shirts were Greg Spencer and David Mitchell. Now uh, David as uh, we record this has sent in a shirt size I don't think we've heard from Greg yet so Greg if you listen to this show mate uh, drop us an email give us your uh, shirt size and uh, we'll get a t-shirt organised for you. Yeah thanks to uh, everyone who entered we really appreciate the fact that people took the effort to uh, write in and confirm what the jingle was and to those who didn't get it right oops 
Uh, we didn't tell anyone if you did or didn't get it right. We just said thanks for your entry. So uh, to those who didn't get it right, sorry you weren't in the in the uh, draw hat, but those who did, well done. And uh, it really was great to have all those entries come through. So thanks once again and congrats again to Graham Neal, Greg Spencer and David Mitchell. And I guess we haven't actually told people what the correct answer was. So the jingle was this. Now, interestingly enough, uh, we said last week that uh, people who were granted my age or older would probably recognise it straight away, and we don't know the demographics of the people that are sending them in. But really, I guess uh, you only had two airlines to choose from, uh, you know, well, maybe three if you count Qantas, but the correct answer was Australian Airlines. Australian Airlines, of course, which was before that TAA, and uh, eventually got merged into Qantas in the uh, the early 1990s. But uh, that was a jingle that came out. Uh, they were doing a bit of a rebranding at that time, probably 1986, 7 or 1988, somewhere like that. Uh, they changed from that awful uh, blue, orange and white colour scheme that they had with TAA and moved it across to uh, that very... Actually, I actually liked the colour scheme they had. They sort of went to a a blue, green, yellow and uh, white livery and it looked really good actually. In fact, I kind of wondered why Qantas didn't adopt those colours when they took it over at the merger, but uh, hey, that's just me. (laughs) Oh, come on. Qantas has always been white and red. But we did actually get a number of uh, entries in saying that it was ANSET and one that said it was Qantas. So uh, nice try, but uh, thanks to everybody that entered and uh, congratulations to the winners. Now, uh, Grant, uh, we were talking about the Qantas 90th anniversary celebrations that we went to and while we were there now, it was a very tightly stage managed thing. The weather was awful for a start, but um, we had to wait for a while but uh, in the media brief at the start of the uh, when we were all, you know, at the start of the event uh, we were basically told that, uh, you know, you went to bother Mr. Travolta and don't pepper him with questions and all that sort of stuff. So access was very restricted, um, but he came down he did the, you know, the great showbiz stuff he's a, a great ambassador for Qantas, does a great job and Grant, the condition of that aircraft it looked like it was brand new. Oh, totally immaculate mate it was absolutely gorgeous watching it taxi in and definitely did look just like it had come out of the factory not bad for an aircraft that was built in 1964 now uh, as i said we uh, we did get very close we got a lot of photos if you haven't been on our facebook page lately folks i did put 35 or so pictures up from that day and um, you know basically john travato came in did the big wave did all the media bit with alan joyce and uh, tim holding who's uh, some sort of government minister here who was uh, <laughs> as i said in the uh, photo captions looked like he just crawled out of bed i mean <laughs> You know. Minister for funky, uh, you know, Gen Y dressing. Yeah, that was an absolute disgrace for a government. <laughs> I think he's there. the minister for major events, mate. Yeah, disgraceful. Anyway, <laughs> um, you know, that's not a way to represent the state uh, to, to someone of that calibre who's who's basically coming out here to help us promote ourselves. So, uh, But anyway, that's just my opinion. John Travolta came, did all these media bits, and then basically he was gone again. And we actually, uh, you know, the aircraft was uh, sort of packed up and took off relatively quickly. I think it might have only been on the ground for maybe three hours tops. It was only on the ground for about three hours because uh, his his wife is about to give birth and indications were that she was starting labour early. So uh, not sure if John uh, wound up flying out on a Qantas direct flight or if he did, I'm pretty sure he would have taken his own 707 back through to Florida via a couple of days worth of travel. Yeah, now as I said, Grant, we weren't, we weren't uh, able to uh, speak to John, which is unfortunate, but uh, one person we did speak to, Grant, was Juan Serrano. That's right. Excellent chat with uh, John Travolta's chief pilot. Really cool guy and uh, yeah, looking forward to getting getting him back on the show for another chat about his background in a bit more detail. Yeah, but in the meantime, uh, here's a quick five-minute interview that we did with him on the day. Okay, we're standing here at the uh, Qantas 90th birthday celebrations in a very wet, miserable Melbourne, and I'm here with uh, Juan Serrano. Uh, Captain Juan Serrano? That's a right. Yeah, cool. Now, uh, Juan, if you could tell us uh, about your aviation background and how you come to be flying the 707 with John Travolta. Well, uh, I was 18 years old, started flying uh, first officer in a 707 freighter out of Miami, 
And uh, you were flying flying first officer at 18. At 18 years old, Excellent. so I was lucky. Got a good job uh, and built a lot of 707 experience. I uh, became a captain at that airline, and uh, when John needed a pilot, I was happy to come on board. Cool. Okay, so uh, how long have you been flying the 707 with John? Uh, it's been five years since I've been with John. I've been a chief pilot for the last three, but uh, I've been flying it for two before that. Okay. Do you fly any other aircraft as well with him? I do. I fly his Gulfstream. He also has a G2, yep. and I spent some time flying that. Okay. Cool. So uh, how is this, how is it keeping the 707 in the air? How, how, a bit of effort to keep it flying? Oh, she's great. She's a 1964 model, uh, rolled out of Boeing, painted just like you see her. Yep. So she's got some time on her, and... Uh, she flies terrific. She, you know, all her systems work. She has some some upgrades uh, that allow her to comply with the modern regulations of things like RVSM and things yeah. of that sort. But uh, she's a good girl. She keeps, uh, she behaves, and she works good and uh, takes cool. good places. Now that's running JT8Ds. No, these are JT3-1s. Ah, oh, Steve wins. I won that Steve day. wins. <laughs> I thought they were JT8s. Yeah, okay. it's the it's the first generation of the JT3B engines. Okay. Um, you know, if you remember, the 707-300 model has a little bit of an upgraded version. Yeah. Uh, but these are 17,000 pounds of thrust. Okay. Uh, and they're the first generation of JT3s. Okay. Have they been, they've been hush-kitted, yeah? They have been hush-kitted for stage two. You'll see them a little different in configuration than they originally yep. came out. Uh, but the airplane takes a performance degradation to comply with stage yeah. three. Uh, so we're actually full stage three compliant. Okay, so you can pretty much go anywhere at the moment. Anywhere, anywhere okay. in the world. So what kind of routes are you taking these days with John? Oh, uh, last month we went to Moscow and Mumbai. That was an interesting trip. Cool. Uh, this time we, we're here and um, we'll, uh, we'll see Auckland, New Zealand yeah. before we leave. Okay. And on the way back we'll stop in Fiji. Yep. Uh, Hawaii, and then we can uh, make it from Hawaii all the way home. So you're going to island hop? A little island hop, and then straight to his house and park it in his backyard. Yeah, because he doesn't. He has the runway and everything over in Florida, doesn't he? Oh, yeah. He absolutely cool. does, and we land there. Uh, you know, he flies all his airplanes out of there and just pulls them into the garage when he's done. <laughs> That's totally awesome. So the actual route, if you, if you didn't want to island hop, what sort of duration would you expect to get out of the aircraft? We can uh, go just about nine hours with the reserves. You know, that's still not enough to get across the Pacific, so we'd have to island hop a little bit. This trip, we're going to do Fiji and then Hawaii, and we're going to rest in Hawaii. And from Hawaii, we'll go straight home, and that'll take about just about the, the nine-hour range that she has. Yeah, okay. And how much time does uh, John spend, at, you know, how much tick time does he get on a trip? He gets quite a bit. Uh, we actually have to ask him for landings because he wants to take them all. <laughs> uh, he does He does most of the flying. I'd say 80% of the flying John does, and he's uh, quite a good pilot. Okay. And uh, the approach in here to Melbourne today, obviously, uh, full IMC, it's uh, not been a great day weather-wise. So, had it all right, no problem, coming it's, up runway uh, 27. It was actually 300 overcast. We broke out right at minimums, <laughs> and we were on localizer, on glide slope, on speed. John was flying, and he made a great, great approach. And as you can, as you probably know, this thing does not have an autopilot that can shoot an approach, <laughs> yeah. so it's all hand-flown. Yeah. We have to pedal it, as they say. <laughs> well, that's an interesting question I was going to ask you about. The level of technology on the aircraft, has you sort of kept it basically as it was, or have you sort of got a lot more of the digital avionics in there these days? We have an FMS, which helps us on the long-range navigation. We have digital altimeters, which allow us to comply with uh, with RVSM uh, criteria. But other than that, she's steam gauges, um, what they say. You know, we don't have any EFIS display at all, nothing electronic. It's all the old pointers and needles. Now, uh, John was mentioning that he was the first non-test pilot to fly the A380. Um, I think I think that was what he was saying. And he's, he's interested in getting a captaincy in the A380. Would you tag along on that one? Oh, I'm, I'd love to. I mean, I think that'd be a great rating to get. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, well, I mean, if you're chief pilot for him and he's flying various aircraft, is it? Are you, do you fly what he flies in terms of ones that he doesn't own, or...? 
Well, I, you know, come to think of it, I think I should. Why would you buy? Especially if it's going to be the A380. Yeah, I think we've got a case going here, haven't we? Yeah, I think I'll put in a request for that, see how that goes. We'll send this audio to him for you. Yes, please. Okay, Juan, uh, is there anything else you'd like to say for our listeners? We've got no. people here in Australia and the US. I tell you, we love being here in Australia. This is terrific. I mean, the hospitality here has been great. Everybody seems to really appreciate the airplane and what we do with her, and that's uh, that's comforting to see. Yep. Excellent. No, it's beautiful to see the old Qantas livery still flying, and Thank you very much for helping keep her in the air. Uh, thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, so there you go. Uh, Juan Serrano, uh, it was very kind of him to uh, stand out there in the rain with his grand do that interview quickly. It was, uh, like I say, uh, not the best of weather, but, uh, yeah, very, very kind of him to do that. And uh, hopefully uh, hopefully you'll pass that interview on to uh, John uh, Travolta and geez, you keep your fingers crossed, Grant. You never know. We might get him on the show one day. Yeah, it'd be great to have a chat with John himself. I mean, the link here to Down Under is, of course, that he's the Qantas ambassador and flying a Qantas painted aircraft. So uh, that's a good enough excuse for us to get the foot in the door and have a chat. Yeah, Grant. And, uh, you know, whilst we didn't get to speak to uh, John himself, I had heard a rumour. In fact, I believe the guys over at Flight Podcast uh, may have actually scored an interview with the great man. So uh, well done to uh, Marty and Ken for that, if that is the case. Cool. Uh, that's excellent. A mighty effort, guys. So uh, we, we certainly hope that that interview gets out on Flight Podcast reasonably quickly. I assume it will be. I'm not sure what their production schedules, uh, where it's at at the moment. But, uh, yeah, great work, guys. Yeah, I know, they've, I know they've got a bit of a backlog there of a lot of stuff recorded. So I, I keep looking forward to when the next episodes come out. They do a pretty good job over flight podcast and uh, always always fun to listen to okay grant well with all that out the way let's get into the uh, the meat of the episode and uh, as we've been long promoting for the last three or four shows we're uh, finally going to get out in this show the last two of our uh, red bull air race season wraps so we're going to lead off with uh, nigel lamb and uh, we spoke to nigel a couple of months ago now and uh, i'll just tell you folks up front we had terrible trouble with the phone line so nigel's audio did suffer a little bit i've tried to i've tried to fix it up as best i can but uh, unfortunately uh, that's some of the vagaries you have to put up with uh, from Skype sometimes but uh, hey that's what you get for using a free service <laughs> yeah it's worth what you pay for oh wait a minute yep so uh, still uh, as always Nigel always gives a fantastic interview highly technical and I'm sure you'll enjoy it folks and so we'll cut to that now and uh, following that one we'll have the very popular Canadian pilot Pete McLeod <laughs> Well, the last time we spoke to Nigel Lamb, folks, he was sunning it up over there in Rio, but now we catch him in a probably a rather chilly location there in London. Hi, Nigel. Uh, hi, guys. Um, um, it's not that chilly. I mean, England isn't so chilly in the middle of September, but it's, uh, we're heading into the winter, which is always a bit of a, uh, a sad time. But um, no, we're all good here. Well, we hear that, uh, you know, the uh, chilly is a relative term when we're talking about the Northern Hemisphere. Is that true? Yeah, there are, <laughs> I suppose it is, yeah. And it's a bit windy. And I'm not in London. I'm in sunny Oxfordshire. Beautiful. Cool. Well, Nigel, thanks for taking the time to have a chat to us and uh, we were going to have a chat with you about uh, review review the last couple of races of the season, the season overall mm-hmm. and, and what the future holds. So we'll okay. start off with um, the most recent one, which was Lausitz and uh-huh. uh, you made it into the final four but then had the uh, terrible misfortune of a flat tyre as you were getting ready yeah. to take off. No, I mean very, 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 it was very uh, bleak time for me because um, of all, I have to say of all the races I've done, I think it was my forty. 40, 42nd or race or something. It was the one I really felt I had a very, very good chance to win because I'd been, um, you know, strategically I had a good strategy all day and I was holding back a little bit, really looking forward to the final and uh, never had a, I've never had a flat tire, you know, after climbing in the cockpit, you know, in, in, in 35 years. I guess I've walked in the hangar a couple of times in, in, the, in, in a few decades and found there's a flat tire, but I've never had one 
while I'm in the airplane. So it was incredibly bad luck, really. Definitely. Was it just a, a tube let go, or did you? Pick yeah, up it a- was. Yeah, the tube, the, the tube by the valve, it split. Yeah. It split by the valve. So in the period oh. during which I was doing my run-up, yep. um, it, it just completely deflated. So it wasn't like a soft tire or anything. There was just no air in the tire at all, and the, oh. the whole wheel spat and rim was sitting on the on the ground. So I mean, I just couldn't move. I, I just couldn't believe my bad luck. But there we go. I mean, what can you do? Yeah, well, you still you still made it into the final four. So uh, I noticed that uh, throughout the whole season, you 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 went you were second in Abu Dhabi and then fourth in Perth, and it just kept repeating from there: second, fourth, second, uh, yeah, fourth. I did. Yeah, yeah, that was spotted by somebody who said it was it was consistency of the numbers two four two four two four. So <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't the plan. I mean, I really do feel that. Uh, I did, I did feel I had a very, very good chance to win there, and I and I and I, and I could have done a lot better in New York too. But uh, you know, you you go through the season, you have got your disappointments. I have a few disappointments about the way I flew here, and including Perth, um, winter, and New York. Um, you know, but I guess it's the same for everybody who doesn't win a race. You know, you, you saw it was good. One particular place where you could have pulled a bit more, perhaps, or cut a corner or whatever, but you only find that out afterwards. So, but all in all, it was a good season. Yeah, well, it was your career best with Red Bull, wasn't it? You came third overall. Yeah, I did. I did, and um, you know, controversially, uh, may as well mention here that uh, in actual fact, I was very unfortunate on the day, in, in addition to the tire, because um, my main rival, the biggest, the biggest chance I had. I mean, I was really aiming for unless unless Paul Bottom completely blew it or had a a, a, a mechanical problem like mine early in the day, my chances of winning with the championship were very small. Chances of coming second were very big. And so my main, yeah, and, and, and actually I should have been second, which was unfortunate because um, Hannah Tark made a massive mistake in his first run of the day to the track and it wasn't spotted by the stewards until afterwards, but he posted a time and went on to win the race, which was a bit unfortunate for me because really and truly it, it would have been second place for me in the championship. But you know, it's um, second and third are both losers, so there's not much difference between the two, I'd say. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but you're still up there and, uh, and on the podium for the for the year, so that's a big thing. Yeah, it was good. You know, it was a great result. It was a great result for us. And uh, and I, uh, you know, I guess my my philosophical approach is possible of you know it is what it is. And you know, I, I that really could have been a race for me to win, and I didn't because I had a puncher. Um, who knows? Maybe it was divine providence and fate telling me not to get airborne <laughs> because uh, you know I don't know. Who, who knows? But it is yep. what it is. But it's probably a bit easier to be philosophical about it because knowing that certainly was the last race for quite a long time, you know. So, uh, in in the grand scheme of things, the difference between one place here or there in one race is completely um, transcended by you know what's happened on the, in the in the in the on the big scheme of, of not having any air race at all next year. So that's what that's what's the, yep. most, the most disappointing thing. We spoke to uh, Matt Hall just the other day, and um, a week or two back we spoke with uh, Hannes Ark as well, and we asked them. So we'll ask you the same thing. How did you find the the competition this year? It seems uh, from where we're sitting and watching on the TV that it was uh, a lot more fierce this year, and uh, perhaps a few more uh, forced errors as a result. How would you view that? Yeah, I think so. I, I think that's a fair. A fair, a fair um, kind of overview. You know, year on year, I think things became did become more competitive. I think that the performance of the airplanes began to close up. It took me four years to, you know, I thought my airplane was pretty competitive last year, but you know, the stuff we did in the winter, just in terms of the handling of the machine and 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 the uh, the power to weight ratio, made it very very much more competitive this year. So I think that you know there were several people, several 
teams were always podium capable in any race. So it made the competition much harder. You know, you had to go for the consistency. And I, and I you know, and I, I, I believe that two, uh, or not two, but a few people really, really did get sort of over aggressive now and then, and 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 um, you know, in the pursuit of trying, trying to, you know, gain those odd few fractions of a second here and there. And what was the wash-up with the, uh, the the winglets? Uh, would we call it an experiment, Nigel, or was it uh, something that will be ongoing? Um, you know, of course, they were quite distinct, and we talked about well, the winglets last time, but um, what was the wash-up in the end? Well, you know, I think I, you know, nothing much changed. I didn't, I wasn't really, uh, never was able to pinpoint uh, any specific scientific numbers and be able to say, yeah, you know, um, the, the, the addition of the winglets had a bit major part to play. In theory, they should they, they they were they were effective, but you know because we did several modifications during last winter, it's very difficult to, and we ended up with a much improved machine. It's not so easy to 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 allocate uh, any performance gains to any given aspect of what we did. But uh, you know, I was I was ready. Um, I, I was ready to move on to the next phase. So you know, I was in touch um, uh, before the last race to develop the winglets further and make them and, and improve them for next year. Um, which we felt was doable, but of course now that's that's on the back burner. So we'll have to see how we go. But no, I think they I think they created a, uh, they were v- very very interesting and probably did you know played played a substantial part in 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 the improvement of the performance all around. Any other tweaks? I mean, okay, next year is not happening, but did you come out at the end of the season with other tweaks you'd like to make to the plane? Oh, absolutely. No, absolutely. We, I mean, we, um, the sad thing for us all is that, you know, after New York, we thought next year was, was, was on and, um, we had a, you know, a bunch of stuff we were going to do, including the, the winglets and we had some other uh, aerodynamic stuff that we were going to do and we were o- o- already onto the power plant uh, situation. So yeah, we, we would have had, uh, I would have stuck, you know, I did over the, in, over the, over the years. I mean, you know, I, I did go into the doldrums with the development of the MX. Yes, you know, which started for me in 2006. So I spent four years going yep. from a, a two-seater, you know, all monocoque, new type of machine, and and got to you know consistent podium places uh, in, in um, 2008, uh, 2010. So it took me four years. But yep. you know, it, it did cross my mind that it would be int- would have been interesting to to have also been in an edge. You know, um, <laughs> there was huge. No, for sure. I mean, you know, you just look around. All the people that I was, you know, on a par with in back in 2006, who went into the into onto the edge, had immediate success, and it just took me a long, long time to to get back to to, to matching them. And and, yeah. and so, you know, it was never far from my mind to think, you know, wouldn't it be fantastic to do a season in an edge just to see? Yeah. And I'd gone through the process of of, of looking at that, and uh, I had decided that that um, I was going to continue to build on on what we'd done in the team with the MXS. Well, it certainly and seems to have paid off through this next win. Pardon? Oh, it certainly seems to have paid off. Well, yeah, would we? You know, we had plans to make further improvements and tweaks uh, for next year. And, uh, you know, that's all, all now on the back burner. We just have to wait and see what's going to happen. Uh, Craig Andrews was your uh, team technician this year. He was new for this year, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. I mean, he came in. I, I wouldn't I wouldn't have looked for someone new had it been possible for me to keep Nigel Huxtable, who, who was my engineer for three years. But he, he basically had a, lot of, you know, he had some, a few reasons why he needed to... He, he couldn't make the commitment, which is growing year on year. I mean, the, the, the truth is that the... The role, if I look back to 2005 when I first started, you basically needed a, an engineer to accompany you to the races to help you know, polish a 
kick the tires, uh, put fuel in, and and you know if anything goes wrong, be there on hand to to, to rectify it. You know, change the spark plug or whatever. And it it grew and grew. The, the commitment required by the the engineering side it grew year on year, and it just became a very uh, difficult for Nigel Huxwell because he was also chief chief engineer at um, a fairly substantial general aviation maintenance company here in the UK. And yeah, uh, and also for family reasons, you know, he just couldn't do the whole season. He couldn't commit to the whole season. So that's why we I, I, I um took on we took on Craig Andrews. But but uh, no disrespect to Craig, he he stepped into a position where there wasn't that much to be done for the season because all the, all the work had be already been done up to that point. So he came in at the beginning of the year when most of all the mods had already been done. So he 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 played a fairly small main, uh, engineering role this year um, in terms of development of the airplane. But you know, we had a lot of plans for next year. But that's all gone. Well, I guess it's the maturing of the operation. Uh, if you look back at what it was like in the old days of uh, early Grand Prix racing and so on, it was yeah, just tweaking it and keeping it going. But uh, now it's yeah. it's quite amazing with the data logging and the and the, the, the aerodynamics and the work that goes on. So oh, it's huge. Yeah, absolutely. No, I mean there's a huge, huge, huge amount you can do. And uh, um, I know I know that Hannes was big into his uh, data logging, uh, which 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 I I reckon would be extremely useful. But um, because uh, have you ever been go karting? Yes. Yep. Okay. If you go go karting, you can see how am- amazingly simple da- data logging can be in a <laughs> dimensional in a two dimensional sport. Because you basically yep. put a, a, a tracking device on each machine, and then every time they pass the uh, start finish line or a- anywhere else you like on the track, yep. uh, you, you've got data, haven't you? And you've got instant data, and it's very easy to get that. I mean, and and so for Formula One guys, it's very simple. If you want to do try to achieve the same thing in air racing, you, you've got a, a, a massive mountain to climb because it's three-dimensional and it's constantly yep. changing. So yep. you're, not, you're not on a track which, where the race line stays the same. I mean, the, the ideal race line is completely consistent and constant on any, any, any uh, wheeled sport track. Yeah, the, there's a race line that's there and you know, yep. the same, it's going to be the same race line every year at Spa unless they change the track. But for the race itself, it's going to be the same. Well, ours changes with the wind. Mm-hmm. You can't determine, because it's three-dimensional, it's very, very difficult to get accurate data. Yeah, so I think Hannes spent an absolute, uh, Hannes Ark, I think, spent an absolute fortune on, on developing the data logging system. Okay. And I'm not, I'm not sure how much it helped him, to be honest, because, I mean, even in, uh, even in Lasset, without all that stuff, for me, it was... You know, it was possible to be pretty competitive and fairly simplistic means. There were lots of places to develop, and for sure, it was. You know, the whole thing just became more and more and more intense and more and more uh, complicated as yep. time went by. And year on year, it was ever going to be that because you weren't looking. You're not looking for. Oh, I think I can gain a second here and two seconds there, and overall I can maybe gain six five seconds. I mean, you know, this year I would say if you if you were behind by a second, you've got a huge amount of work to do to find yeah. ten one tenths or, or or whatever <laughs> to try and make up that time. Therefore, you needed to become much more technical and much more. You had to put the put every single phase of the flight under a microscope rather than the overall. One of the interesting uh, things, particularly that Matt's been having this year, was uh, issues with weight and balance on the MX. Was that an issue for you this year, or like, for instance, Matt was telling us that they had to vary the battery size uh, and therefore the battery weight to uh, help balance out the aircraft. Now he'd done some quite major mods to his aircraft. Was that an issue for you, or is that something that your team's got nice and perfectly set out? Uh, we 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 nailed that right from the beginning. To be really honest, when we rebuilt the airplane two years ago, so at the beginning of the 2009 season, 
we, uh, we, we, we took a, an absolutely massive amount of weight out of the airplane. Because when it was built, it was built in America by a... Uh, bear in mind that the MXS and the MXs are, are kit, uh, kit airplanes. Yep. So back in 2008, the, the, the um, MX would, would produce a kit and then you, you would get somewhere to build it for you. And um, the company that built it for us really didn't, didn't um, I would say they didn't embrace the weight aspect as much as they should have. So, I mean, I started off in 2000, beginning of 2008 with, with an airplane which was extremely heavy. And then through the winter of that year, for the beginning of 2009, we stripped uh, something like 100, over 100 pounds out of that airplane. Wow. Which was just absolutely, absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, part of it was in the engine. We, 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 we got a different engine, which was, uh, I think, 15 or 17 pounds lighter, something like that. But, but just everything, paint, nuts, bolts, washers, everything. And in the process of stripping weight from an airplane, you, need, you, you, you do end up getting to know it pretty intimately because, because <laughs> if you... You, well, you do. You you just do because you need to. Wherever you take the weight from, you need to know where it is in relation to the um, the datum, the center of yep. gravity datum. So we were all through the wind, all through the many months it took to rebuild the airplane. We were tracking the um, the center of gravity, and we ended up in a position, I suppose, very similar to Matt's, really, where we were under the minimum weight. And then it's a matter of uh, we 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 built a very very clever system in 2008 where we could move the center of gravity anywhere we wanted. That's basically. handy. So I could move. I could I could move the center of gravity anywhere, anywhere and, and, and track everything and make sure that when I landed it was within limits but at the optimum position. We did that all through 2008, uh, through 2009. And so I was fascinated to hear Matt's problems with his center of gravity, his handling and pitching problems because of the center of gravity because we, yeah. we, 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 we had that well under control from the beginning. Well, I, guess, I guess that begs the question, Nigel. I mean, how much more development can they do on this aircraft? I mean, they seem to have been so finely honed up to a point. How much more can really be done to them to make them faster or, or any more aerodynamic than really they already are? They're pretty sleek just to look at as it stands. Yeah, I mean, I think if you speak to the edge people, they would say that one of the benefits of a, of a, a steel-tubed fuselage covered by whatever um, started off as fabric in the fuselage and then, you know, more and more carbon panels and then, and then, and then you got the V3, edge V3, which really was modifying the fuselage shape by, by adapting the exterior to fit onto the tubular structure and then you which 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 gives you huge um scope to, to play around with aerodynamics and 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 that's absolutely true you can't do that with the mx uh, very easily not with without substantial weight gain because um the, you know there's a huge mold you can't just yeah. change the mold unless you've got hundreds of thousands to change a mold <laughs> and, and do make a new kit yeah. so it is i would say that to a large degree adapting or changing the fuselage structure to get a more aerodynamic shape was more probably more difficult on the MX, although the latest versions of the MX were built are are being built significantly lighter than than even mine is now. So if you end up where you've got say I don't know 30 40 pounds or something under the minimum race weight, and that's weight you've got to add back on. I guess you could say, well, you could create different shapes and and change the fuselage shape. The wing you can't really change. 
Okay. The cowling you can change, and we were onto that. We were going to make even. We made a massive improvement to our engine cowling this year, and there's lots you can do in that area. Not not without great expense, but it, but it's it's less expensive than changing the fuselage. And there are other little tweaks and changes, but keeping things in perspective. Four years ago, or certainly three years ago, we thought that the edge had pretty much run its course in terms of what you could do to it. Because in 2000 uh, and seven or six, I think 2007, Mike Mangold started, you know, with this winglet, winglets and cowlings and and he really started doing all that. And we, we, you know, a couple of years later, we thought the edge wasn't going to be able to be developed much. And then they came up with a V3 and Paul Bonham did a lot of work on his. So they were constantly managing to get more and more performance out of the edge, which is a very basic sort of machine. And I'm pretty sure that, you know, with the MX, that, that is also possible. You have, to, you have to think about it and be very clever about how you do it, but it's doable. We're starting to see aircraft being built more for racing than for aer- like the Edge and the MX have all come out of out of originally out of aerobatics. Now they're being pushed more into racing lines. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the, the MX is born of a kit, and you if you if you phone MX and say I would like a uh, an MXS for the Red Bull Air Race then you're going to end up with a massive menu. Well, <laughs> what do you want? Do you want this? Do you want that? How do you want it? What kind of canopy do you want? What what landing gear length do you want? What? And there's lots of different ways you can bend your money, basically, <laughs> to make it more, to make it, make it faster. But what we have done is we've developed the airplanes into racing airplanes. So now to change my airplane back to an aerobatic airplane would will require quite a lot of reverse engineering. I mean, we're going to have yeah. to, we'd have to uh, rebuild the engine cowling and, Oh, lots of, of work. You know, some, well, you know, I mean, lots of work. It's, it's, it's reasonably easy doable. It just costs quite a lot of money. Yeah, well, you're better off continuing down the racetrack, uh, the racing path. As long as there's a place to race it. But at the moment, we're looking like there isn't. So. Yeah, well, let's, let's move on to that, Nigel, and we'll, we'll talk a bit about the future. What, what's your take on what's happened with the Red Bull suspending for next season? Uh, do you have any sort of opinions you can share with us on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, it's, I, I think it's understandable that um, – you know my 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 opinion from from where I see it. I think that um, the exotic exotic nature of all the locations was fantastic, but probably the most the the Achilles heel of the project in a way. I mean, we saw this year that we had uh, both uh, Porto and then or Portugal, wherever that was going to be, Lisbon, Porto, and Budapest cancelled. I mean, that's just. Uh, not that doesn't help the project in any way at all because you can't then have uh, and, and I can fully understand why you know I mean it's so complicated to run a race in the middle of a city and and yeah. and every year many times every year I've come away from events thinking how on earth do they manage that because you know I mean we raced in the middle of of a, in Manhattan downtown New York I mean to to pull something like that off is a, is an incredible achievement of of um, logistics log- the logistic feat. All the permissions. I mean, it's just incredibly difficult Politics. to arrange that, and, and it's yeah. and probably everything, just everything. I mean, you've got yeah. to pull so many um, people together, so many mm-hmm. agencies together to make that happen. You end up in a very vulnerable situation, and that's why over the years, Red Bull ended up running 50 races. Some there would have been a few more had they not been cancelled, and sadly, this year there were two. Yep. You know, I mean, well, maybe, maybe for whatever the reasons are and we will i mean losing the flagship race of budapest was a huge blow yeah so i think i think the the reset is one of um practicality and logic really is how do you reconfigure to end up with a very very secure program of races a calendar of races while everybody's working full speed ahead to just make the next year happen you know to, to in order to to get it off to a fresh start to make 
sure, first of all, that there's a very, very solid calendar, mm-hmm. which is then appealing to television, to sponsors, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and kind of as guaranteed as you can be. I, I, I do see the need for them to just take take a pause and say, it's, okay, hey, we need to we need to rebuild, we need to stop and rebuild using the experience and the expertise we've got. I sort of feel they need to sort of make a bit of a, a quantum shift in the public's mind to get it away from the idea that it's an extreme sport. And, and maybe that's got something to do with it's being sponsored by Red Bull. But it, it needs to be sort of, the perception needs to be changed, I think, that it's more mainstream, like Formula One motor racing, uh, rather than, you know, sort of a specialty. I think the word you use there, exotic, was a good word. I mean, people perhaps view it as a novelty rather than a mainstream sport at this stage. Yeah, I mean, we, you know, we've long felt that uh, you, do, you do some iconic locations for example, um, New York will have done wonders to to put air racing, you know, in the in the minds of many Americans because it is such an iconic location and it was very spectacular mm. and there was a great race and it was well run and it, it worked in the busiest airspace on the planet. Yeah, or just just beneath the busiest yeah. airspace <laughs> on the planet. So it was a very complex complex operation. So that would have put that would have really enhanced the awareness. So then. I would suggest that maybe in, into the future you, you 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 have many many more races. So we needed more quantity mm. of races, at, and you and you do them at much simpler locations. For example, like the Lausitz Ring in Germany, which was a wonderful wonderful event. It's not as it's not as big in terms of spectator numbers as, for example, being in the middle of Istanbul with one point something million people surrounding the, the the shores of the Golden Horn. So what you do is you you know you've got to you've got to get out there and and have regular guaranteed races and the way to do that is probably to run one or two per year in in very complex locations which are iconic and help to spread the word and then ultimately possibly way in the future it doesn't really matter that you don't really need to be in the in the, the heart of any city mm. because that is very very difficult to do very expensive very complicated and and saps a lot of the resources of you know just people's time to make it happen so you know if you did, did a lot more racetracks or easier locations and you just run a very consistent guaranteed calendar is brilliant for the sport and i would i would venture to to add that most well backtracking slightly what we've noticed is that the awareness of the the global awareness of what the red bull air race is all about was was significantly higher this year than any year previous and we come across constantly come across people who have absolutely nothing to do with aviation who just love it and they're like, it yeah, and everybody knows what it's all about yeah now I would say that many of those people want to see races. They just like the challenge. They like the competition and they like the race and they like to see the airplanes going through the track. Where the track is is not necessarily that important. Although it's it's interesting, Nigel, um, talking about Lausitz, I thought that worked really well for one main reason, and that's because it was different. It was over land. It was a different location, and and it, it provided a clear point of difference, I think, from the other races which are over water. So from that point, it was you know something else just to pique your interest. And I think if that was an experiment this time around it was a good one well i think you know racing over land was nothing new uh you know we've raced over land um many times in the past but the majority of races because of the nature of the race and the fact that you need you know you need a big open space if you want to go into the middle of cities well you know the the harbor or the, the river running through the city becomes the obvious choice of a, a, a location so we've ended up over water not because we want to be over water but simply because that you know the geography has dictated it to race over land was for me 
much, much better than lo- racing over the water for a number of reasons. First of all, your um, depth perception is absolutely fantastic because you can, you, 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 I mean, you've just got, you've got bushes. I mean, you, 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 can, you can feel exactly where you are above the surface, which is great. The sensation of speed, I mean, this is an aside, but the sensation of speed and the ex- excitement for, for, the, for the competitor for me is enhanced. It's, it's, it's wonderful. Racing over land is wonderful, but more important for me is if you, you know, you just don't really care if you have an engine failure because you can, you can put it down, you know, whereas over the water, you've always got this little nagging, you know, little worry in the back of your mind. You just don't want to have to force land on the water. So from a safety perspective, I would say overland is much, much better. And, uh, you know, if you can find locations where the infrastructure already exists, where you've got car parking, you've got the place to take off, places for people to sit and uh, racetracks like Lausitz Ring are an obvious choice. Yeah, good surroundings. And I loved Lausitz Ring. I, I loved it. I loved the track. And, uh, you know, typically you get there and you look at the track and you go, oh, my God, that looks absolutely impossible. And you sort of start heading heading for the track at slightly slower speed for your first run. And, and then within half a run, one lap, you down in amongst the gates, and on your next run, you go through. You go through the start gate at maximum speed, and by the end of five minutes practice, you're ready to rock. You know, I mean, it, it was just a fantastic track in a great location, and the atmosphere from the crowd was just superb. I mean, you know, they were cheering, and when you know, when when um, when their man Matthias was was either his face was on the screen or his airplane, or he walked from the pit lane, you know, you get a loud, very very loud <laughs> cheer. But the yeah. crowd were always also cheering all the other guys, you know. So you know it was just great. You you, you walk down the pit lane with your airplane, and there's a huge cheer from the from the crowd, and it was just very great. It was great. It was a brilliant, brilliant atmosphere. Awesome. And I just wish I wish in hindsight that we'd had many more races like that. Well, hopefully, it's something that they're thinking about uh, for 2012. Um, do you know? I do you know? I think what they're doing is they're just um, reviewing. They sort of mopping mopping up the loose ends from this year. Reviewing, obviously, there's uh, you know, a lot to be done with the disappointments all around. I'm sure people who you know cities who were expecting the race next year who had been had kind of secured a race for next year will be hugely disappointed. And there's some something that's got to be done along uh, with them. But I think they'll be just you know working very hard to come up with something that's sustainable. And in my opinion, it starts with a very solid race calendar. We can't you just can't afford to have you know ten. 10% or something or 15% of your race calendar blown out of the water because it's so complicated that somewhere along the line it falls foul of one agency in one city yeah. and one or two cities and you just can't get it off the ground, you know, so that's the first place to start. It's got to be locked in well in advance. Yeah, and, and, and I I think that the, the, the momentum that was built up and the global awareness was such that it, uh, and the concept is just so, so good so appealing yeah. it has so much potential i think that uh, you know with a bit of luck when it restarts it'll be um it'll be off to a flying start you know yeah yeah so where does this leave uh, nigel lamb for 2011 uh, what are what are the plans now most importantly um do those plans include you know another trip down under <laughs> no that'd be nice yeah that'd be nice. <laughs> you know we shall see we shall see uh we're very you know enjoyed enjoyed coming to perth this year and uh and i was lucky to be at the at tomorrow yeah. Uh, in the Spitfire, sort of November last year, I think it was, yeah. um, or October. But um, yeah, it'd be, gra- it'd be be great. We'll see. I mean, to be to be back to the the cancellation of of, of next year was came. I must say, did come as a huge shock to us all. Uh, you know, when you look, sit back and reflect on it, it, it it's very easy to see the need, and we've we've touched on that. But uh, yeah, I mean, the last month has been very very disorientating. You know, what, you know, what do you do next? Because you you've got this. Um, 
you drive and passion, you build something up and, and then suddenly you go, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? What, just sit back and wait for a year? What do I do? But you know, we'll be busy. We've got, um, we'll be doing a lot of, a lot of stuff for other stuff for, for Brightling and we'll be uh, helping as much as we can if required in the, on the road to, to, the, to a relaunch of the air race mm-hmm. in whatever, whatever form it is, whatever, whatever they decide. And, um, you know, hopefully be back in 2012, 13, whenever to, um, pick up where we left off or, you know, but there's, 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 there's a lot that's going to happen, I think, but uh, we'll, we'll yeah. keep busy. Well, I'm not sure what we'll do with the airplane, but at the moment my plans are we'll just, uh, uh, it's just undergoing a major maintenance check now, uh, which will finish, I think, hopefully by the end of today, maybe to next week, early next week. And um, then we're going to mothball it for the winter, inhibit it, and uh, yeah. see what happens. Uh, because it, it would be, you know, if we picked up where we left off, it would be the airplane I would want to be flying. Yeah, definitely. Just a few little tweaks and you'd be ready for the next season. Yeah, sure. But we're not going to do any of them until we know it's happening. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. A wise Definitely move. <laughs> All these things are very, you know, very costly and take up a huge amount of resources. So you want to, you, you need to have a very firm plan and know exactly what direction you're going in before you, uh, go to, you know, start implementing. Well, Nigel, one of the really cool things about uh, talking to all you guys, all you Red Bull Air Race pilots, is is the huge amount of time that you're prepared to give to talking not just to our audience but to the media in general, and we've really appreciated that, uh, you keeping us in the loop this season and even last season when we were talking to you. And uh, just uh, a big thank you uh, on behalf of our audience for uh, spending so much time with us this season, and we really hope that we can keep in contact with you uh, next year from time to time. Feel free to call, and, you know, we're always willing because I think one of the, one of the big messages I always try and get across is that uh, people who want Watch what we do probably struggle to understand what we're doing because everyone drives a car well most people drive a car so understanding what it, what, what the skill of a rally driver or a Formula One driver or a whatever formula racing you're watching or super bikes or anything you know it's wheeled sport it's you know, reasonably easy to to identify with what's going on through the in the mind of the driver and and what skill they have and what what I think we or we certainly from our, my perspective from our team's perspective what we try to put across is that actually what we do is not inherently incredibly complicated you know the basics or the basics of flying are exceptionally easy I mean you can teach someone to loop and roll an airplane in ten minutes it's it's very simple what takes time is the the real finesse and the art and you know coping with emergencies if if they come along if you lucky enough for them to come along and take mm-hmm. off and landing and all the other you know operating the machine does take a huge amount of, of of practice but but the basics of what we're doing which is you know strapping some wings on our back and taking our body through a racetrack or whatever is is, is pretty basic really yeah hard to do hard to, hard to go fast and, <laughs> and fraught with and fraught with danger if you don't know what you're doing but but it, you know if we can connect with people to just get them to understand what's going on in our minds how we think and, and what, what we're actually doing to achieve what to them looks kind of I suppose uh, kind of hairy and like we're crazy. <laughs> it's not. It's all well. It's all a calculated risk. You know, it's the yeah. same for me. I watch. Uh, I watched um, a couple of weeks ago. We went to the X Fighters. Have you ever watched that? No. Which one? X Fighters. It's a kind of motocross. It's the guys doing crazy things on on bikes. You know, flipping oh, them wow. and doing somersaults. Oh, wow. <laughs> I like you know, the chunky, the crusty demons and all that that crowd. Yeah, you just go and just go on X Fighters on the internet. You'll see it. What those guys do is just to me that's barking, Matt. I mean, it's <laughs> crazy. It's just crazy. And I know how to ride a bicycle. I know how to ride a motorbike, and I think it's amazing what those guys do. Yeah. But, you know, just trying to connect with people and let them know what we're thinking, what we're doing. We're just passionate about what we do, and, yeah. and it's, it's it's a lot more. It's not. It's a lot easier to understand and to do than most people would think. Well, you guys make it look pretty effortless and easy, and uh, 
for those of us who do do any flying, we know how hard it is to make it look so good. So uh, we really do appreciate it, mate. Okay, well, you're good, good, good talking to you, and thanks for the call. And yeah, call anytime you like. Thanks, Nigel. Pilots, prepare, refresh, and renew at Flight City. Whatever stage of your career, Flight City makes up keeping and enhancing your skills easy and economical with their two state of the art flight simulators. The fixed base simulator replicates a Boeing 777, and the full motion simulator can be a Seminole, King Air, or Citation. Trust Flight City simulators and instructors to help you train for sim checks. Prepare to fly a bigger aircraft, renew your type rating, do the jet orientation training course, and more. See flightcity.com.au or visit Flight City at Jan. I'm Matt Hall. Hi, I'm Matt Hall. I'm Matt Hall. No, I'm Matt Hall. No, I'm Matt Hall. Everyone wants to be Australia's champion Red Bull Air Race pilot, and now you can own a piece of Matt Hall memorabilia. Polos, T-shirts and caps for all shapes and sizes can be found at matthallracing.com. Just go to the online store and you too can be in the loop. Hello, I'm Matt Hall. Hi, I'm Stuart Stevenson, a.k.a. Pilot Stu, from the Pilot's Journey podcast. And I'm Stuart Stoll, a.k.a. CFI Stu, inviting you to join us for the Pilot's Journey podcast, where we discuss aviation, proficiency, and most of all, enjoying the journey. You can find us in iTunes or at pilotsjourneypodcast.com. And don't forget to enjoy the journey. So we'd like to welcome to the show from Ontario, Canada, it's Pete McLeod. Hi there, Pete. How are you? How are you doing? We're very good, mate. Welcome to the show, and thanks for spending some time with us. The Red Bull season for you has been uh, a better season than your first season through. You've been uh, quite consistent, uh, finishing fifth overall, and you've had a few fifth places. Uh, how did you view the uh, Red Bull Air Race season uh, from where you sit? Yeah, I mean, 2010 was a great season for me um, from a, a number of standpoints. Uh, real building on 2009, you know, coming in as a rookie and uh, just wanting to learn and get my flying, you know, starting to settle into the into the racing environment as well as learn what I need to do on the uh, the team operation side and modifying airplanes and all that and put a lot of that into play over the off season and came out with a strong start in Abu Dhabi and uh, was able to, for the most part, continue that momentum throughout the season. So a lot of success as far as the results side of things, but also, uh, you know, behind the scenes, behind the results board, um, showing um, the air race and, and really, you know, a lot of uh, team search take notice as well as you know i was really happy with things and and sponsors the, the team side of things are starting to pick up as far as strengthening and and you really need that if you're gonna you know challenge for a world championship in the future is you need that strong team behind you so you know everything from the communication side of things to the technicians to the, the research and development going on um at home even while you're you know across world racing all those things are starting to Starting to fire on all cylinders this year, and those are some of the major benchmarks that were, you know, I look at as um, successes this year. In addition to the fifth place overall finish, well, you've, you've certainly it's all certainly come together because yeah, you, you've dramatic improvement between 2009 and 2010. So congratulations on that. Yeah, thank you. Now you're flying an extra at the moment, aren't you? Uh, no, I, I fly the, the Edge 540. Um, oh, sorry. Oops. That. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you'd said you were waiting for the extra to come back. That's right. It was the Edge. So, so how are you yeah. finding the Edge? Yeah, the Edge is a great airplane. I mean, uh, in my in my aerobatic uh, 
career, you know, I've flown, flown a lot of time. I've got a lot of time in a pits, a Giles and an extra 300S and, um, you know, all wonderful airplanes in their, in their own right. And the edge was what I chose to start my racing career in last season and, and continue to race it this year. It's a great airplane. It's got a lot of, it, it's well balanced and, um, it's got a very intuitive, uh, intuitive handling characteristics to it. So, you know, you strap the airplane on and uh, it doesn't take much to fly it. It's easy to fly. You think things and it, it does them. So I'm very happy with it. And, you know, in the racing world, one of the cool things about the Edge is that it's uh, quite effective uh, in the modification game because it's all uh, mostly components. When you look at, the, you know, when you talk about the fuselage, it's just a steel tape tube fuselage. And the actual shape of the fuselage and everything is just fairings. Uh, carbon fiber fairing so and modular design so you can work on certain components of the airplane and not have to change the whole thing whereas uh, if you compare to say the mx or the corvus it's a more of a monocoque design where you do get a you know smoother overall finish on the plane but um, you're really stuck with design from the factory i was reading recently pete that uh, your aircraft was one of the uh, the heavier aircraft in the field were you able to improve that situation at all through this season yeah absolutely you know 2009 i raced uh you know, a legitimate 70 to 90 pounds uh, heavier than the rest of the field, which is just huge in the racetrack. You know, you think of a uh, 10G corner and you're carrying an extra 700 pounds around that corner. And I was able to get effectively all of that out of the airplane uh, over the off season. You know, we had a tremendous program in place to get the the plane, um, you know, the performance up on the, on the same airplane. So one of the older edges in the series in 2009, which is essentially a stock airplane and uh, really put it through the ringer with a focus on uh, power to weight. So, uh, you know, I run a Lycon engine in uh, 2010, which helped a lot. Uh, you know, Kenny and the boys there made, just made me a lot of great power and a really well running reliable engine. And then on the other hand of things, uh, I got all the extra weight out of the airplane. So I actually uh, was able to get it down far enough where I was running, um, you know, able to run underweight. So you, you obviously can't run underweight. So we're carrying lead, um, not, not as much as some of the guys are carrying, but carrying a few pounds of lead um, as ballast to make minimum weight, which is nice because uh, if you want to add, you know, different equipment or even, uh, believe it or not, even, you know, a sponsor coming on board the last minute where it's final decals adds weight to the airplane. You can take some weight off and make sure you're at the minimum in the start grid. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You, you wouldn't think a bunch of decals would do it, but I guess, you know, every, as you're saying, every pound adds yeah, yeah, absolutely, and, and it makes a difference in the track for sure. So how do you, how do you go about uh, reducing the weight of the aircraft? What kind of things do you take out, and what do you have to keep in mind when you're doing it? In terms of like you know, uh, sometimes a lot of that weight is is part of the structural rigidity and things like that, isn't it? Yeah, I mean that's that's a tendency you have to try and stay away from, and uh, especially with you know on the edge, all the uh, the flying surfaces are all carbon, and uh, including the skins, and they're not very thick, so you've got to be pretty careful on what you do there. But the two major components surprisingly enough for the engine um you know the modern race engines that we're running are about 30 to 35 pounds lighter than a, you know a similar io540 that would be uh, you know a high performance aerobatic engine versus the race models when we put all the mods on it it comes in about 30 to 35 pounds lighter and as well as the uh, believe it or not the paint on my airplane so Wow. Yeah, I saved uh, yeah, I, I saved 25 pounds net gain off of uh, of repainting uh, over the off season. So one of my sponsors in Canada, or XU Aviation, they did uh, they did just an awesome job of attention to detail, and we took the whole plane every every last bit of the airplane down to carbon and uh, and repainted from there. 
you know, as lightweight as possible. Uh, the plane still looks great. The paint uh, doesn't come off in the rain, believe it or not. And, uh, <laughs> but it is a lightweight, um, it is a very lightweight paint job. So you do little things, you know, like, uh, you know, I, a lot of people, of course, probably knows my, my extremely bright red airplane, uh, color scheme that I like to run <laughs> and things like pigmenting the primer when you put it on, you know, for example, that allows you to get still a great finish, but, um, not have to put as much, um, final coat on and you run single stage paints instead of two stage where you've got gel coats, etc. So there's all kinds of things you start looking at and, you know, in, in general, in in aviation, a lot of people uh, think just, you know, across the board, uh, well, I'm going to change a battery, et cetera, to change weight. Well, we've done all that from the start. So that, those aren't options. So you start looking at the finer details and um, some of them become pretty labor intensive. But when you pay attention to every last fraction of an ounce and of a pound and uh, changing nuts and bolts to make sure they're the proper size and, you know, switching to a, you know, a jap nut versus a standard one across the airplane. It's amazing where that weight can come off. Now the weight is just the aircraft, isn't it? It doesn't include the pilot. Yeah, that's correct. So we have a minimum aircraft weight and actually 2010 was the first year that we had a, uh, a minimum pilot weight as well. So <laughs> in 2009, not only did I have an aircraft that was, you know, at least 70 pounds overweight, you know, I'm also just over six feet tall, pretty lean guy, stay in pretty good shape, but I, you know, I still come in at around 170 to 180 pounds, depending on, you know, where I'm at, um, during the season and, um, how much weight I want to carry, but we, uh, uh, you know, that puts me in 2009 when you compare it to, um, <laughs> your, uh, your Aussie pilot, Matt Hall, uh, he's, he's a lot small, he's a lot smaller guy than me. So yes. uh, you've got an additional 20, 25 pounds difference right there. So this year it was 80 kilos was the, uh, the minimum pilot weight, which is roughly uh, 180 pounds. So I was actually able to put on a little muscle, uh, for me, I felt a little stronger this season than I did last year physically, uh, yeah. which was nice. I wasn't fighting that battle. Um, and uh, I still raced slightly underweight pilot weight. So I, uh, um, I sat on a piece of lead that again, I would dial in. So I made sure that I was personally, I was under the weight so that I was able to always be at the minimum. Cause again, you know, that pressure's there because there's other guys in the field that are at the minimum. So if you're not, then you've got a handicap. You're running the, uh, the Lycoming 540 engine with the prop on that, um, the three bladed prop. I'm just curious, is that a constant speed prop? I assume it is. Yeah, absolutely. We run the, uh, the Hartzell Claw. Uh, so it's a, uh, it's a, it's a composite, fully composite propeller stainless steel edge and it's uh it's constant speed so we run a um i ran a non-counterweighted version this year there are a few guys that run counterweighted versions so uh you know but uh with the governor setup and the uh my new engine this year actually had some really good oil temperature and pressure control so i i was able to run with an accumulator with no problems and again that's saving some weight out on the front end but it's an awesome prop and it, it you know it really pulls so when you've got your, uh, I'm just curious, when you're going through the course, how do you have your power set? Do you leave your power sort of set at a constant level or are you, you know, you're adjusting it as you go? I assume you'd leave it uh, flat out most of the time. Yeah, you know, just run full power the whole course. And, uh, you know, you use, if you're uh, if you're going you're going fast on a corner, that's a good thing and you just pull harder. So, you, you know, more <laughs> G is key. Uh, we do have a 12G, uh, you know, 12.0G limit. 
in the in the track, uh, which I managed to hit a couple times this year. I didn't go over, which is good, but you know you're disqualified if you go over. So uh, you do have to watch on some some tracks where if there's a hard corner or a uh, vertical turn where you've got a lot of speed, you can approach that. But um, overall, it's just uh, you keep the power in and you want that engine pulling you around the corner the whole time. So uh, the big thing is ahead of the race, actually. You know, and you're you're in the hold and that running into the start gate, it's the setup of the engine. So getting your RPM right and the leaning, you know, that, that can be worth 20, 25 horsepower extra uh, coming through the start gate and uh, and how you bring your power in at that time. So that's the big difference there. And it's funny because, you, you know, you initially think of that and you think, wow, how much does that really matter? And um, the reality is, is uh, having your engine set up properly and running full power versus uh, being off cue and running full power over, you know, a minute and 20 second run can be about two seconds worth of time in the track. Well, the, the leaning is an interesting concept that you mentioned it, Pete, uh, given that you're like 40 feet off the off the water. How much leaning do you need to do to the mixture? I, you know, it depends. It, it depends on on a lot of a lot of factors with the temperature and the air condition. And, you know, we do, I, I personally deal with that a lot of times in training ahead of the uh, actual race day and uh, simulated runs with that. You want the proper fuel air mixture regardless of how high you are or um, what the temperature is or not. So, you know, we've got detailed information of our uh, exhaust gas temperatures and cylinder head temperatures as well as fuel flows. And we, we have a rough idea of what to expect and what we're shooting for. And then we dial it in with our EGTs to get as close as possible. So, you know, everyone has their own <laughs> their own setups, let's say. So, uh, you know, you're gonna have you're gonna get have guys running um, different number of degrees off of uh, off of peak, uh, whether that's lean or rich, and everyone has their optimum. Um, that's about as much as I'll say on that, I guess. But uh, you find that magic number that you think works for you and it's making you the best power, and um, you want to shoot for that all the time. Well, Pete, we might get back to the racing side of stuff in a minute, but uh, we just wanted to touch. I noticed when we were in Perth here that you uh, enjoyed quite some popularity over here with the crowd. So uh, just for our Australian listeners, uh, you're 26 years old, uh, looking at your bio here. Tell us about your journey through aviation. Uh, what inspired you to get into it and ultimately uh, getting through to aerobatics and all that sort of stuff? How did that uh, come about for you? Yeah, I guess, you know, for me, I guess um, not a uh, not a completely unique, but definitely um, maybe not the standard upbringing uh, in aviation as I was essentially uh, essentially born into it. My my dad's a pilot and I'm a third generation pilot in my family actually, but my dad flies and he uh, he had me up in the family plane um, going for a ride um, with my mom holding me at six weeks old and uh, <laughs> at about three years I was three years old sitting on his knee, uh, starting to take, uh, take the stick in the family Cetabria, um, to start to, you know, figure out what does what. So, you know, I quite literally grew up in an airplane and, uh, it was one of those things that, um, there was never any, you know, formal instruction or, or, or missions of like, say youngest person to, you know, fly across Canada or something like that forced on me at a young age, but really the, uh, the right seat in the, uh, Cessna 180 on floats that we had, uh, always had the control call a minute and, and the door was always open for me to go flying and uh, it was something that um, I felt really comfortable on the airplane and really enjoyed it and I did a lot of it growing up so you know at uh, 10 11 12 years old I was doing uh, essentially full operations from the right seat uh, in, a, in a fairly demanding bush flying environment uh, yeah. in northern Canada and uh, that was that was normal for me. It wasn't. Uh, I didn't realize that that was something that not everyone does for a long time. So uh, I got an early start, to say the least. And you know, I uh, I still 
something that that bush flying up north. I did that all through uh, university and uh, working through school, and uh, still something I love to go do, and uh, it's it's very relaxing for me. But the aerobatics uh, came at, at 16 years old when uh, I went to get my private license, and again my father he uh, I was doing it on a Cantabria there, he is, you know, to start right off on a tail dragger, and he asked the the instructors there at the school to they did some aerobatic training. He wanted me to have some just some introductory unusual attitude training strictly for the, the benefit of safety training for for bush flying and just normal in general having a little more experience as an aviator you know departure stalls um, more advanced spin work basic stuff like that so nothing towards the direction of sport aerobatics but I uh, I fell in love with it immediately and I uh, I spent the majority of time working towards my 45 hours for my private license doing aerobatics um, rather than when most people were you know, working on diversions or just in the circuit, that was kind of old hat for me. So I was, I was doing other things, but you know, it was just something that aerobatics really caught my attention. And um, I love to kind of experience all kinds of different flying, but for sure, I think aerobatics and the racing is something that just satisfies uh, my, my dream in the airplane. And uh, when I saw the, the Red Bull Air Race for the first time, I was heavily involved in aerobatics, competing throughout the States. And um, doing well, and I thought, you know, that's that's perfect for me. It's something. Um, it was instantly something I dreamed to do, and I kind of started to tailor my my training and competition and towards that. Of course, knowing that you know, being a young guy, there were a lot of challenges uh, to get there. Wow, yeah, from a very early age, indeed. It's 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 wonderful to to hear of kids who get that opportunity. So I'm glad to hear that you uh, you worked it. Yeah, bush flying. That's that's a way to relax. <laughs> For many people, that would have their uh, tension right up the ratchet. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's fun. I mean, it's, I think part of the the fun the the most fun part about it for me now is that I'm I'm generally flying an airplane slow enough that once I get airborne and above the tree line, I can uh, I can look around and you know see the moose standing in a creek uh, that I'm flying over or just yeah. uh, you know cruise around and enjoy the scenery. Where uh, in the racing world, it's just uh, whether you're in the track or testing, it's so mi- mission specific that um, you've just got to be on all the time. That bush flying is your way of going for a country drive to relax. Essentially, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when I was learning to fly, um, and particularly when I was doing my instrument writing, I had a number of instructors tell me at that time that, you know, this is where you'll really learn to fly. But uh, recently we've been talking to a flight school up here in Sydney where they take you out pretty much straight away and, uh, you know, throw you around doing aerobatics right from the start with their theory being that aerobatics would make, you know, learning that early would make you a better pilot. I guess uh, you'd probably be a believer in that theory going what you've said. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the reality is that an airplane doesn't stop at 60 degrees of bank and it doesn't stop flying. It doesn't fall out of the sky. And, you know, it's uh, with the proper type of instruction and you know the proper approach to it for, you know, and that's going to change for individual students. Uh, it's something that's uh, exceptionally safe as well as exceptionally rewarding from, you know, both, of course, a fun standpoint of just doing it. But, you know, there's pilots that experience closer to the full envelope of an airplane um, are just that much more comfortable within the normal operating envelope. And when you end up with that, I mean, you just you just overall end up in a, in a better situation. And, you know, I think actually confidence more than uh, maybe hands and feet skill set just the confidence alone plays a big role in that now just just on different aircraft and and exploring the envelope with aircraft now you've already mentioned uh pits skiles the extra the edge you've uh, mentioned doing the um you know, like the cessna 180 the Citabria. what other aircraft have, have you flown yeah i you know i actually i'm i'm not one of these guys that's flown you know 100 types of aircraft i've 
I've spent spent my time, a lot of my time flying uh, aerobatic planes. So most of my time on wheels is all aerobatic time, except for just doing my uh, my license on the Cetabria. And, you know, I've also been through the ringer when I did my commercial and some of that stuff on the, the standard, you know, Cherokees and 172s. And other than that, you know, I've got the, the 180 is what I, I worked on in the bush. So I've uh, that's pretty well the list. I, I've been up in some other stuff and flown, you know, a handful of other ones. Of uh, a cool one is actually I love the um, the Husky. is a cool little flow plane. I flew that on amphibious yep. floats, um, and uh, that was actually pretty neat for me because it's like I um, I went and purposely did some uh, circuits on the runway with it, and uh, it's like landing a giant uh, shopping trolley shopping cart. <laughs> 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 you're, uh, you're way up high in, in this little airplane and uh, on, yeah. on on four wheels <laughs> and uh, so uh, that's kind of neat but um, yeah you know I've uh, it's something I uh, uh, it's actually kind of on my list you know I'd love to do I'd love to get into helicopters and uh, I'd love to do some start doing some uh, instrument you know instrument flying and multi-flying I haven't done any of that yet I've been uh, kind of uh in a way sheltered to, uh, you know, a very cool side of aviation, but again, still sheltered from the, the broad range of things because I've been focusing so hard on, uh, on, uh, the, the performance side to get into the racing and, and, and succeed in the aerobatic world. Pete, there's always a lot of parallels drawn, uh, or similarly drawn, if you like, between Australia and Canada. Um, you know, a lot of people say that they're quite similar countries, except of course that Canada's a lot colder than here. How do you, how do you, um, how is the aviation scene over there in Canada? Is it? I mean, for instance, I learned to fly in the states, and it's it's huge there. But how how does it compare in Canada? Yeah, you know, the the general aviation side, the private side of general aviation, certainly exists in Canada more than it does in Europe, for example. Um, but like many things, you know, Canada as a as a country population wise is about a tenth the size of the states. And a lot of uh, a lot of things here, aviation uh, being no exception, you know, is about let's say a, a tenth as big. So Canada doesn't have airports every uh, every three miles like the states does, <laughs> but there's still general aviation is very accessible in Canada. So the uh, the cost to fly is is very reasonable. Uh, fuel costs are essentially uh, they're a little higher, uh, but they're essentially the same. And the the access as far as rules and regulations and airspace are almost identical. So you end up with a very uh, a very friendly environment towards general aviation, and as a result, you know a, a fairly strong community that's associated with that. And you know I think part of that for Canada, kind of Canada's got a, a fairly rich aviation history because of um, the role aviation has played on the civilian front, uh, opening up the north in Canada. Um, I mean. To this day, there's a lot of going on in Canada that's only accessible by airplane. And yeah, you can imagine 50 years ago, or even 100, uh, you know, not 100 years ago, but 50 years ago, there's uh, the, the the frontier of of the north was you know bush pilots essentially exploring uh, uh, new areas. And uh, you know, the town uh, that I grew up in, Red Lake, Ontario, is um, at one point. Uh, it had the busiest, um, it was considered the busiest airport in the world with takeoff and landings at a certain time with float planes and um, heading up north, uh, uh, whether it's uh, mining or uh, native reservations. 
and different explorations or different things like that. So that still happens as well as, uh, you know, of course the military plays a big role. So, you know, Canada has a very small military, but has some of the most respected fighter pilots in the world and, and, and played a big role in, in the training and, uh, and flying side of, of, uh, the world wars over in Europe. So it's, uh, and that's where my, uh, my grandfather actually, that's where he got his, his flying start and in, uh, in world war two with, with Wellingtons. Yeah. They're a good aircraft to fly. Yeah, yeah well, I'm third generation, and uh, yeah, that one of my I think it was my father's great uncle was uh, test pilot of Wellingtons. So uh, yeah, yeah, no, a lot of a lot of Commonwealth uh, pilots learned to fly in Canada. Um, some Australians would go to Canada, and yeah, a lot of people came out of Canada, out of Australia, all into into the UK to to join in that war. So yeah, there is Steve's right. There is a lot of similarities uh, between yeah. Canada and Australia in that respect. Actually, yeah, Pete, one of our favourite TV shows down here that is um, Ice Pilot. It looks like some extremely uh, yeah. challenging. I mean, I know it's done up for the TV, but notwithstanding that, it looks like some uh, very challenging flying up there in the north, the likes of which you you wouldn't really get down here. Yeah, with the Buffalo Airways there. Yeah, it's uh, you know absolutely. There's uh, Canada's a uh, an amazing country from a you know a natural beauty standpoint and, and the ruggedness. Uh, you know, very similar to. Uh, I've only been to Australia once for the race this past year, but you know, flying over it, and of course, you know, you, it, it just takes looking at a map to to get an idea that you know when when people understand the the actual uh, the concept of remoteness and uh if you're out in the middle of nowhere you're really out in the middle of nowhere um (laughs) so uh you know, and flying in that environment poses a whole new challenge, and you know it it brings a lot into uh, you have a different outlook and and you have a different responsibility because the uh, uh, the safety blanket of uh, of of a network of airports or other airplanes in the air aircraft uh, you know air traffic control mechanics there's a lot of spots in Canada that aren't there. <laughs> it yeah. doesn't exist. You're you're on your own. Yep. So uh, yeah, and that's uh, that's something that I guess if you're used to that becomes normal. And you know, I, I an interesting example I guess with that is uh, you know Canada is a big country, a lot of different types of geography. But I did my license out uh, in Steinbach, Manitoba, which is at uh, Harv's there, which is kind of like prairie, uh, the the beginning of the prairie, and you head west from there, and you, you go east, uh, not not very many miles. And you're in Ontario and it gets into the Canadian Shield and all very rugged rock and trees and lakes. And that's that's where I grew up in. And I was the really the only student uh, there to ever do their cross countries uh, eastbound because uh, no one else liked to fly over the rocks and trees and lakes. But for me, that was normal. So I guess it's all what you're used to. And yet I had never, uh, never seen a mountain or never flown over a mountain anyway until I was about 19 years old. So that was always interesting for me when I head, you know, far out to the West Coast, whether it's uh, BC or California to head over the mountains and kind of, you know, hold your breath as you're, uh, you know, scraping by them at 12,000 feet. <laughs> yeah, that's always fun. You're, you're, you're going about as high as you can without oxygen and there's, the mount- there's some peaks still up and around you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Pete, let's get back to the uh, back to the Red Bull Air Race now. Of course, um, you know we've spoken to a few of the other pilots about their plans for 2011. Uh, obviously, with the race uh, taking a hiatus, while well, they they sort out some, uh, you know, the way they're going to do stuff. So, what does 2011 hold for you? What are you going to do in the intervening time? Yeah, you know, it's a uh, it, it's actually a pretty good question. There's probably a lot of teams are uh, taking different approaches, and at the same time, everyone's you, you have to maintain a certain level 
of uh, enough currency. And when I say that, of course, I mean in the airplane, but also uh, as a team. And you want to keep as much of that unit together as possible because uh, there's been so much progress made in the sport and within the teams over the last years that you can't just stop doing it and go back in 2012 or whenever the air race returns. So that mindset, that, that full-time attitude of dedication to things has to be there. And uh, for me, that's likely going to mean, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to take the opportunity to do uh, some more freestyle and air show flying in North America. There's uh, you know, there's a, a lot of air shows over the summer months in North America and I'll, uh, which I don't normally get to do very many of them the last two years while I was racing. So I'm going to do some of that and, and uh, as well as uh, keep working on the airplane. So I've got, um, I'm, you know, taking delivery of a, uh, the V3 version of the a new Edge 540 uh, in a couple weeks. And uh, that'll be put into testing and development uh, with a racing aspect in mind. And my, uh, my second Edge, the one I'm currently racing, will be... Uh, you know, use use for some testing. Also, ultimately, when the races are going on, but next year likely will be, I'm going to set it up in a more in a, of an aerobatic sense and take a chance to you know do a little bit more of that, which is, you know, a lot of my background in this type of flying comes from the competition and airshow world and kind of go back to those roots a little bit. But really, behind the scenes, the the program, the race program, is still running as far as uh, um, strategizing and modifying and testing and keeping everything in place for the future. Do you think uh, you'll you'll go down the path of putting uh, the winglets on your aircraft or you uh, haven't given that too much thought? Well, I mean, if, you know, uh, I assume you're talking about the uh, the giant the giant ones that uh, Alex McLean and uh, Nigel Lamb ran yeah, uh, yeah, this year. Yeah. yeah. You know, everyone runs a certain, uh, a different type of tip. And, um, all, you know, what I can say there is that uh, I do have a full full testing program in place on different uh, wingtips and winglets. And so far, uh, our data hasn't been supporting using the big ones yet. So <laughs> um, I, uh, I have no opposition to it whatsoever, but just always interested in what works and what doesn't. So it's, uh, you know, and everyone, there's a lot of secrets in the air race amongst teams. So I don't, uh, I'm not privy to the information of how much testing was done on those or what kinds or, and what results they got on. But I do know that, you know, there, there's a number of engineers that work actively with, uh, with race teams and some of them have varying opinions. Um, you know, in the end, sometimes it's difficult to tell what works and what doesn't because it's, it's quite difficult to simulate uh, things in an environment where you can gather data that shows exactly what one change does and one thing doesn't. But I don't have a big shark fins sitting in the uh, sitting in the hangar yet. <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's very hard to lock down to just one variable when you're out and the you know the winds change, the temperature changes, pressure changes, all that kind of stuff. Even even in the course of a few hours of testing at the one location on the same day, it's uh, it's yeah, quite amazing absolutely. how many variables there are. So uh, yeah, yeah, short of short of being able to throw an aircraft into a wind tunnel or even a scale model into a wind tunnel and throw it all around the place, it's which is is not an easy thing to do in terms of time, money, location, etc. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's uh, that, and that's that's what it's coming down to. I mean, I wouldn't. Uh, it's one of those things that I, I would say it's probably not all that common yet, but I wouldn't I wouldn't put it by uh, all the teams anyway that that's not going on. 
Oh yeah, no, the way as, tunnel testing that is. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd, I'd I'd see that yeah. happening, especially with uh, when it comes back in 2012, you know, and all the indications are it's going to be a slightly different looking beast and things like that. And the racing will be slightly different, but everyone's been talking about progressing more and more from aerobatic aircraft to racing aircraft. Uh, you know, as as you've indicated, you want to take your current aircraft and step it back to being a uh, more of an aerobatic one, whereas the new G3 will, will go into more of a racer. So. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what and, and if if everything comes back in 2012 and, and another three or four years afterwards, what what the the races will look like as compared to a normal aerobatics aircraft. Yeah, I know. I mean, the uh, it's actually pretty exciting to think about that because if you uh, uh, if you consider uh, an airplane from even even three years ago, you know the the winning race plane from three years ago would uh, I don't know if it would be in the top eight right now. Yeah. Um, it's just so much development, and when you think about guys, uh, and then on the more extreme case, you know five years ago there's guys flying uh, extra, you know, three hundreds, and um, some of the tracks we fly now. I'm not even sure if they would make it through there uh, with an extra 300. <laughs> when you talk about the power to weight, and uh, they would just run out of energy and not be able to make some of the corners. And that's why um, that's why it's so important that the race comes back in 2012. So we we, we really need to keep our fingers crossed that that happens. But uh, Pete, uh, notwithstanding that, we uh, we need to see you back here on our shores. You were very popular down here in Perth. Did you enjoy the time here? It's probably a loaded question. Yeah, I did. <laughs> no, I actually, uh, um, like I guess said uh, earlier, it was my uh, my first time in Australia, and I. I, I did have a lot of fun. I thought it was uh, it was an easy adjustment for me culturally. You know, uh, as you mentioned earlier, I think there are a lot of similarities to Canada. There's probably a lot more similarities to uh, to Canada than there is the uh, United States. And um, aside from uh, the uh, a different accent, there's everything else is pretty much the same. I didn't get to see any kangaroos except for the one they brought by the airport. Um, oh, but other than that, you know, that's probably a little stereotypical of me to say that, but I, <laughs> I had my fingers crossed for that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. We, uh, I, I work with hot air balloons, and uh, when we were out flying in the bush, we saw a lot of them. But even here in the city, there's a couple of parks out on the fringes where you'll go in to take off or land in those parks in the morning, and, and there'll be a mob of kangaroos hopping around. Yeah, they're a menace. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not as bad. I've as they heard drop stories heads. of them uh, running through people's houses and everything else like that. <laughs> like, Actually, uh, uh, a friend of mine, a friend of mine, not long ago, just hit one in an SUV and it rode his car off. So <laughs> they're a menace. Oh, yeah, yeah, I guess it's like uh, that's the equivalent of uh, deer and moose up in northern Ontario. Yeah, so, yeah. I tell you a story yeah, just like, as an aside. I, I did uh, most of my flying training down in Arkansas, and uh, when we came in to land on our little bush strip there, we actually had in the summertime you'd have to do a couple of low passes down the runway to clear all the deer off the runway first <laughs> otherwise you'd slice them up yeah, yeah absolutely no there was a uh, there's a the the field just 40 miles or so from red lake I, I did a lot of aerobatic practice there when i had made too much noise at home i'd go down there for a weekend or two and there was actually uh there was one summer where there was a resident uh probably about a five or six hundred pound resident black bear um Ooh. that would oh yeah <laughs> camp out on the runway and i would have to uh to always clear him off before I left. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would kind of annoy him, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, they kind of sit there and look at you for a while and 
uh, <laughs> wonder if you're serious or not. They're not used to being pushed around. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you know who I am, boy? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to get back to Australia at some point. All right, Pete, we better wrap it up there. We really appreciate the huge amount of time you've given us here on the show and talking to our listeners, mate. It's been fascinating to uh, get the view of yet another Red Bull Air Race pilot. It's, um, we're really, really pleased with the way you guys uh, make yourself so available to us. So uh, thanks very much for speaking to us, and we, we certainly hope that we can uh, keep in touch with you uh, through 2011. All right, pleasure's all mine. Good talking to you guys. Thanks, Pete. You might have seen the Red Baron performing daring aerobatic feats over Sydney's magnificent beaches. Now it's time for you to see the world from the Red Baron's point of view. Whoa, probably upside down. Go to redbaron.com.au to find out more about scenic tours and aerobatic flights with the Red Baron. You could fly in the Pitt's special open cockpit biplane, the Red Bull stunt plane, or the new Gippsland air van. To find out more or to book your flight, phone 97910643 or go to redbaron.com.au. If you can't get enough of airplanegeeks.com, try playing crazy down under. And then come back and listen to airplanegeeks.com again. If you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're in the aviation industry. You could also be spending bucket loads of cash on advertising your business. Well, this won't cost you bucket loads. Advertise here on Plane Crazy Down Under. Listen to by hundreds of aviation enthusiasts and professionals who might really like to hear about how your business could help theirs. We'll even throw in some advertising on our website as part of the deal. See our affordable rates at www.planecrazydownunder.com. Just click on the advertising with PCDU link. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Podcast Network. Thevoicesinyourhead.com My mind has been meandering towards matters military recently for a number of reasons. A chance sighting of a monument dedicated to the Royal Australian Air Force in Germany, the not long past Anzac Day celebrations and a telephone call to my grandmother have had me thinking about the RAAF and indeed all of our nation's armed services. It does have a bit of six degrees of separation about it, but bear with me. Hi, I'm Anthony Simmons and this is a somewhat different view from the lounge. The keen or more regular masochistic listener would be aware that I've been taking the waters in Europe recently. At the airport at Lübeck-Blankensee, a regional airport about an hour's drive from Hamburg, there is a large granite monument dedicated to the Royal Australian Air Force from the people of Germany for their participation in the Berlin airlift between 1948 and 1950, flying in and out of that airfield. That was the occasion that started the ball rolling. Not long after my return from Europe, our glorious land down under celebrated Anzac Day. For the overseas aviation podcast aficionado, a brief explanation regarding Anzac Day. It's Australia's de facto national day, and it's held on the 25th of April. It commemorates the landing of Australian and New Zealand forces at Gallipoli in the First World War, and is generally seen as the baptism of fire and the coming of age of Australia's recently federated Commonwealth. Nowadays, it's an opportunity to remember those who have served in all arms of the military and covers all conflicts. My thoughts on this day usually lean towards the Royal Australian Air Force. 
And the reason is I had three grandparents serve in World War II and both my maternal grandparents enlisted in the Royal Australian Air Force. Obviously, my grandmother wasn't a pilot. She was a cipher assistant, a code maker and breaker. And to this day, she is a gun operator with a cryptic crossword and still whips me mercilessly over the Scrabble board. My grandfather, who was a car mechanic when he enlisted, wanted to be a pilot. His service records show that he applied for transfer to aircrew training, but was unsuccessful and spent his service on the ground as a mechanic. All three were volunteers. My grandmother only served in Australia, and both my grandfathers served in Australia and New Guinea, or Dutch New Guinea, depending on which service record you read. They all came home safely, obviously, otherwise your correspondent wouldn't be here, and I was fortunate to know all of them. My grandmother subsequently was heavily involved with the WRAAF Return Services Association, hence the telephone call. I do call her on other occasions, just to let you know. As a brief aside, if you are an Australian listener and you have relatives who served, you may be able to get a copy of their service records, as I have done for my grandparents, from the National Archive of Australia. You'll have to stump up a shekel or two, but they do make for interesting reading, especially if you are starting out as the budding family genealogist. Free plug? Go to www.naa.gov.au and have a bit of a look around. Just remember, the 30-year rule does apply. To tie up the loose ends, I attended the Anzac Day service in Hayfield, a smallish country town in southeastern Victoria. The honour guard around the cenotaph in the main street was provided by RAAF service personnel from the nearby Air Force base in Sale. After the service, there were refreshments provided at the local Returned Servicemen's League Hall, and I took the opportunity to speak to several of them. What struck me chatting to these men and women was their poise, their self-confidence, and their obvious pride in what they were doing, and I had a slight feeling of jealousy and inadequacy. I cannot help but think of all the young men and women today, not just in Australia, but around the world, that have chosen the same path and have joined the services in their respective countries. They have a dedication and a commitment to service and, as I have seen, a degree of professionalism which I can only envy. And that's the view from a different lounge. No music or silly sound effects this time. I feel that would be inappropriate. To those members of the RAAF and indeed all of our armed services, I raise my glass in salute. May you always pursue your goals and maintain the pride of your service, such as my grandparents did and you continue to do. From a grateful citizen and a beneficiary of your service and sacrifice. And there you go. I tell you what, Grant, uh, you know, Anthony's a, a very interesting character, but uh, I can tell you when he recorded that, and it was actually back in about May or June that he actually put that one together. We were saving it up for something else. But, uh, you know, I just sort of thought that, you know, we've just had Remembrance Day here, and I thought uh, it would be just as appropriate to run it in, in uh, this episode. But, uh, you know, Anthony, he was actually quite emotional when he was uh, recording that here in the studio. Okay, really serious for him. It did come through that it was uh, not one of his, his usual lighthearted ones. Yeah, well, I <laughs> Well, speaking of that, mate, he's got a few to come, though, and he's actually got an angry one coming up, too, which is uh, quite entertaining, too. So uh, Anthony always puts a lot of work into that segment of his, and uh, he does a lot of work for us in the background, too, so we really appreciate his efforts. And uh, it's it's always uh, important to appreciate our servicemen, and, uh, you know, uh, from, from all the countries around the world, it really doesn't matter where they're from. You know, in the end, if they're out there uh, serving their country, well, that's, uh, there's there's really nothing more noble. Indeed. It's, uh, you may not always agree with why they're over in another country or, you know, why they're putting their life on the line, the political side of why they're doing it but uh, you've got to do all you can to support them and try and bring them home so safely yeah that's very true well Grant uh, speaking of uh, people that uh, put their life on the line oh, that would definitely be the postman around your place yeah he does yeah my, my dog just likes to go bananas mind you the postman might have heard my dog bark at him a lot of times but it's probably just as well he's never seen him because he'd probably die laughing yeah <laughs> oh cheer up Charlie poor old Charlie the PCDU official mutt <laughs> <laughs>
Listener mail in front of the brand new microphone, Grant. Listener mail. This one comes from Steve Horton, who sent us an email a couple of weeks ago. Says, G'day, chaps. Congratulations on the great podcast you got going on. Excellent. He sent us a link here saying, and it's actually topical that we read this one, Grant, because he's talking about uh, some uh, some news reports he'd seen uh, in Perth now, the newspaper across there in the West, uh-huh. and uh, talking about the possibility of the Red Bull Air Race not coming back. Now, um, I, I guess we've sort of covered the way the four pilots that we've spoken to over these last few episodes feel about that. There's, I don't know, what do you reckon, Grant? If 50-50 chance it'll come back in 2012? Oh, look, I reckon I reckon it's going to come back, but it's not going to be like it was. It'll be something a little different, uh, whether it's held out over water, whether it's held in front of teaming crowds, one certainly hopes so. Whether Red Bull is the naming sponsor, I don't know, but uh, I think it, I think we are going to see some changes in how it's being done. Yeah, so uh, I guess only time will tell for that. And, uh, you know, we don't know. We, we do keep an eye on all the news feeds for Red Bull. They've gone very, very quiet at the moment, obviously. You know, we wouldn't expect to hear anything from them, I don't think, uh, probably now until probably uh, the first, you know, couple of months of next year. If, if I had not to, later. Yeah, if I had to guess. So uh, hopefully yeah. they will keep us updated on uh, the progress of, uh, you know, their deliberations as they go on. It would be nice to be kept in the loop. And, you know, to Red Bull, to the Red Bull Air Race people's credit, uh, their media people are very good at keeping everybody in the loop generally. I, mm-hmm. I couldn't complain about it. About that they've been very generous to us Grant yeah no it's been great and uh, I really hope Red Bull come back and I hope they come back to Australia because uh, I'm hanging to go to see it from the media tent like you did oh yeah yeah that was an experience <laughs> Uh, the other thing uh, Steve wanted to point out here, and he wanted to know if we might uh, promote his website. Now, Steve uh, says here he's a budding photographer and he's looking to uh, get his work out there. So, uh, Grant, we'll put a link to uh, Steve's website. Uh, basically, it's at redbubble.com slash people slash Stephen Horton. That's with a PH, all the good Stevens are. But, uh, Grant, I did have a quick uh, surf over there the other day and had a look at some of his uh, photography. It's not all aviation. It's um, just some wonderful photography there. And, yeah, so, um, you know, there's uh, Steve trying to get out there and uh, put his work out there. So we're happy to help. And, uh, uh, yeah, we encourage all our listeners to go and uh, have a look at his work and, you know, give him some feedback. I'm sure he'd be looking for some. Yeah, no, I thought it was some pretty good photography out there. Okay, the next email uh, we're going to do here is from Peter Baxter. Grant? Yeah, when Peter first contacted us, he was uh, interested in, uh, in, in amongst all the other discussions we were having. One that came up was uh, about jet engine technology and the uh, design parameters and considerations that go into uh, putting together jet engines for a twin-engine airliner versus a four-engine airliner and what differences there have to be in those engines. Uh, you can't just take one off a quad and put it on a twin and vice versa. And uh, it was interesting. He, he sent some links to information and I thought I understood it. And then I started writing the, the email back to him and couldn't quite get it. Uh, couldn't explain it. That's when I realized I had no clue. And uh, fortunately, in our last episode with uh, Captain Richard Woodward, when we were talking about the A380 and the Qantas QF32 incident, Richard was able to give us the answer about what just what is involved in designing engines for a twin versus a four engine. So, you know, we got that information out and episode 46 went out and uh, Peter was really happy to hear that. Um, he was quite pleased that we'd been able to answer his question and especially so quickly. And uh, I'd love to say that was by design, but it was really by fluke. But uh, just to throw the challenge and uh, set the bar a little higher, he very quickly came back with uh, another email. And uh, this time he was referencing a story from the book called May Day by John Winslow, which I happened to have in my reading pile here. I picked a copy up the other day and uh, had thumbed through it. So when Peter's email came in, I was like, Oh, cool. I know that one. And uh, yeah, it's the story of an Air New Zealand DC-10 who uh, managed to prevent the ditching of a Trans-Pacific delivery flight of an air tractor. Uh, this uh, single engine aircraft was trying to uh, fly the Pacific on a delivery flight and uh, some 
had some problems with its navigation equipment, uh, was lost and was considering that it may have to ditch in the great open Pacific. Uh, and thanks to some very uh, cleverly done navigation and the uh, general brilliance of the uh, cockpit tech crew on that Air New Zealand DC-10, they were able to uh, locate him and give him some guidance until a P-3 Orion from the New Zealand Air Force was able to come and uh, look after him. Apparently, they've made a movie out of the incident and uh, it's called Mercy Mission, the rescue of Flight 771. So if anyone out there has a copy of this or has seen the movie, I'm going to try and track it down and have a watch. Um, sounds like it could be quite interesting. Uh, but definitely, if you can get a copy of the book Mayday, have a read of that or um, have actually seen the movie Mercy Mission, The Rescue of Flight 771, we'd be interested to hear what you have to say about it. Yeah, it sounds uh, like interesting reading. And uh, yeah, if they are making a movie of it, well, uh, we all love a good aircraft movie, Grant. Yeah, yeah. There's uh, there's some people who say they've never seen a bad aircraft movie. I can think of a few of them, but I, I'm generally balanced that even though it's a bad movie, there's lots of flying, so it's okay. But I must, I must admit, I think my favorite movie opening scene of all time is from the movie Always, about the guys doing the firebombing. And it opens with a tranquil, beautiful lake kind of scene there's two guys pretty much asleep in a dinghy and they're fishing they're sitting in their chairs in the dinghy they've got their rods over the side and it's you can hear the 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 crickets and everything going and it's very peaceful and way 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 back in the distance you see a pby catalina come in and drop down on the surface of the lake and start skimming along refilling its water tanks to drop on a uh, fire nearby and it keeps getting closer and closer and closer and the guys suddenly notice it and they're trying to start the engine and they're trying to start the engine and the engine on their little boat isn't starting and the aircraft's getting closer and closer and it ends with the two of them diving over the water as the pby lifts off just over the top of the boat it's absolutely brilliant that movie is worth it just for that scene alone well of course and I could also uh, mention my customised version of Top Gun that I've got that's got all the kissy face huggy bear taken out of it and uh, goes for about 37 minutes. All flying scenes, a wonderful clip. <laughs> yeah, I did did something similar, except I, I was just using the fast forward button on a tape. <laughs> there you go, videotape. Oh, those were the days. Oh, yeah. Well, anyway, yeah. thanks. Uh, big thanks to Peter for uh, participating in the show and sending us all those uh, emails and feedback. We really appreciate it, mate. And uh, to everybody else who uh, does the same. Now, uh, just one off the forums here, Grant, from uh, listener Brett KP. Brett's uh, been quite active in the forums lately, which is great. It's just uh, given us a bit of uh, good feedback here on episode 46, saying he's just listened to the interview with Captain Woodward. This has to be one of the most informative interviews I've ever heard. Well, hey. What a great guy. <laughs> Richard was brilliant. All we did was just give some guidance and he he, he let it happen. That was brilliant. Yeah, Very we love impressed. those interviews where we can get people in that, uh, you know, that love to talk about stuff and can do so with, uh, you know, uh, such such great authority and it makes it easy for us. It's uh, interviews that don't take long to edit and, uh, you know, that we don't have to do much talking, which is so much the better for everybody, really. So we'll leave the uh, listener uh, mail there. Of course, our forum is at downwind.com.au and you can always send us in any feedback you like at uh, playingcrazydownunder at gmail.com. And people generally do. We get all sorts of comments, information and... And spam. <laughs> yeah, we're doing a lot of spam lately. Yeah, well, you know, it's amazing what happens when you put your email address out in the world. It uh, gets put on a lot of spam lists, but that's what we have filters for. Well, Grant, uh, let's do a quick shout out to our friend Peter Johnson over there in the UK. Peter Johnson's just become a dad. <laughs> Yes, there's the studio audience, Peter. We got the uh, studio audience in just to do that for you, mate. So uh, congratulations, yeah, the arrival of baby. That's it. Oh, hang on, hang on. They're making a mess in the studio. Hey, you like, come on, out, out. Yes, that's it. Yes, collect the $5 as you leave. Thank you. Yes, so uh, Peter Johnson is now the proud father of baby Beatrice. 
And uh, just looking here on his Facebook page, he's got some uh, very, very cute photos. Oh, very cute. So well done to Peter. And uh, it's nice to know that in between that, he's still uh, pumping out the episodes of uh, Across the Pond for the Airplane Geek Show. And uh, I tell you what, Grant, we're going to have to lift our game, mate. He's putting us to shame with his production quality. And what a, what a great effort he's putting in. Absolutely awesome to have yet another person contributing to the Airplane Geeks. And uh, if this keeps up, Max will definitely hit Nerdvana, where um, the majority of the show assembles itself for him. I think he'd be looking forward to that, poor old Max. <laughs> I think uh, we, we give him a lot of editing to do each week. Oh, that much is certain. Well, I think that just about covers everything for this week, Grant. Boy, another big episode. And, uh, yeah, it's great that we could finally get these interviews out. We've had them in the can for a couple of months, so uh, we've just been trying to find uh, the right opportunity to get them out. But uh, that'll probably be uh, everything we do with the Red Bull guys, I think, probably for a while. We've uh, had quite an extensive involvement with them uh, this year, which we've really appreciated. And, uh, you know, like I said in uh, actually both those interviews, I was listening back to them both. I sort of signed them off the same way for both. But, uh, you know, I really do mean it. These, these guys are, uh, you know, like the Formula One race drivers of the air race world. And uh, unlike the Formula One guys, they they make themselves available at every opportunity, and uh, you know it's really appreciated. And uh, you know they make themselves available to our audience and provide such great technical detail. And you know I think they enjoy giving out the technical details and not having to sort of be so you know broad for the general media. So uh, you know it's, it's it's an excellent thing. I think so. I think it's great to be able to have the opportunity to. Uh, get in touch with people and uh, have a great relaxed chat and get some information out that, um, if, well, at least one or two people seem to enjoy. So, yeah. Keep on uh, telling us what you're wanting and what you're looking for, and we'll keep doing what we can. Yeah, that's great, Grant. And, uh, you know, but let's do a little bit of shameless self-promotion here, mate. What have we got coming up in future episodes? Well, mate, uh, stuff that we've already recorded in the can, and we just have to uh, edit and get together into uh, into a release schedule. We have an excellent chat with Bill Hamilton about uh, the problems with how Australia wants to implement ADSB over here. And uh, that's thanks to Baz Sheffers, who helped put it together. And uh, he and I got to chat with Bill and uh, Baz recorded it and edited it and uh, got to realize why Steve is the way he is thanks to all the editing but uh, so we've got that one we also have a uh, chat with Rosemary Arnold the first female helicopter pilot in Australia we talk briefly about her career and history and also her latest book coming out about um, first females above Australia some uh, first hundred years of famous Australian pilots we also have another news review chat with Ben Sandilands and uh, we go into a bit more information about where Qantas is at of course because that's the big news item of the moment and uh, a number of other topics that are quite interesting, including, uh, once again, where Tiger's at. So uh, all these are in the can, and it's just a matter of timing as to how quickly we can get them edited. There's other stuff as well that's uh, in the can, but those are the ones we'll tell you about at the moment. Yeah, and uh, Grant, uh, as we record this, uh, we're going to get this one uh, published uh, very, very quickly because uh, at 6 o'clock tomorrow morning, we're on an aircraft flying up to Brisbane to uh, visit the uh, RAAF Amberley base. That's right. We're going up to hang out with the uh, 6th Squadron and a bunch of F-111 folks and a bunch of F-111s so we're really looking forward to that and the best news is that I get to have a fun day and I get to sleep until 3.30 that's awesome. Unbelievable, 3.30 that's usually yeah, the time I go to bed you know Yeah well I'm normally getting up at 2 o'clock in the morning lately so 3.30, woohoo, extra sleep. Okay well I better get this edit done very very quickly folks, so <laughs> we'll leave it there for this week, that's everything we've got for uh, this episode. Thanks very much to Juan Serrano, to Nigel Lamb, uh, to Pete McLeod and Anthony Simmons and most of all thanks to you for listening, we certainly hope you enjoyed it, we'll be back uh, very shortly with another episode of Playing Crazy Down Under, but until then, just remember this. It's what's down under that counts, folks. You've been listening to Playing Crazy Down Under, hosted by Steve Vischer and Grant McCarran. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, YouTube channel, and Grant and Steve's own blogs can be found on our website, www.playingcrazydownunder.com. 
or keep up with our Twitter handle of PCDU. Comments or feedback can be left on our website or email us at plaincrazydownunder at gmail.com. If you'd like to help with the ongoing production of the show, feel free to assist via the donate button on the website. Any contributions are most gratefully appreciated. Incidental music and sound effects are courtesy of soundsnap.com and title music is You Name It 5 by Brian Simpson. This has been a Southern Skies online media podcast. folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.plaincrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. Oh, mate. Come on, you know you want to say it. The Valvoline. Oh, well, there you go. Oh, dear, he oh, did. Dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> well, I might just cut that one out for the uh, for the blooper reel. Uh, is that the blooper reel that keeps growing really, really huge and we haven't even really started the episode yet? Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> Joy. Oh, hey, one quick question. Uh, one of our listeners yeah. asked, asked, what's this bull me thing going on? And uh, I figured that was, uh, that means give me a Red Bull. I usually tweet that when I'm having a Red Bull. <laughs> so it's so. like bull me. It's actually, uh, it, it's also um, very well closely matched with uh, with beer me. But I don't know, you know, <laughs> yeah. beer me, bull me. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's, easy to bull, it's easy to say bull me and then jump in the plane and beer me and jump in the plane. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, you hit the nail on the head there. It's, uh, it's uh, I need I need a Red Bull, so I'm going to the fridge to get one. <laughs> bull me. <laughs> All right. All right. Oh, well, we'll okay. just we'll just do our usual uh, lay back chat, Nigel, and um, just see okay. where it goes. And hopefully, I don't drop a clanger this time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We've done more don't research worry, this time. So short, I can't even remember the last one. Oh, good. <laughs> Now, uh, Nigel, before we kick off, my uh, my twelve year old son Christopher is here and he's dying to say hello. Oh, fantastic! Hi, uh, Christopher. How are you? Good. Yeah. What? Why aren't you at school? What's going on? Uh, of course, it's the middle of the night, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, no, there's uh, schools. Well, we'd like him to be yeah, in. Eight thirty on Friday. Eight thirty on Friday night is great because you got the whole weekend ahead and no school, huh? Uh, yeah. Yeah, he's off to a scout camp tomorrow, so. Uh, we're going to have a very quiet oh, weekend great. here. Yeah. <laughs> Can you take mine along as well? <laughs> It'd be fun. So what do you, what do, you do on the scouting, uh, your scouting Um, They all, well, most of them have different themes. So, and this one's called Cohen Shield. So, and I've never. Called I, what? what? Sorry, what's it called? It's called Cohen Shield. As in Cohen, as in Mr. Cohen. It's a competition camp. Yeah. Uh. Well, and 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 good luck to you. it's Christopher, right? Yep. Yeah. Yes, it for, is for his uh, scout camp this weekend. Oh, so good thank, luck. thank you. <laughs> Cheers, Christopher. Bye. Okay, he's just going to listen in, but I'm going to mute him out. Cool, huh? So you talked to a Red Bull Air Race world champion. I've talked to two. All right. You need to get like Hannah's Arc or something. I have to. No, I didn't talk to Hannah's Arc. Yeah, did I? I've got Hannah's Arc.